Ah, Tamaria, welcome to First Up. It is Rapa. That's Wednesday, the 2nd of November. Kornathanrarere Aho. Coming up today, a leading immunologist says we're driving ourselves off a cliff thanks to a more relaxed approach to COVID. The West Coast prepares for a month's worth of rain in just 36 hours. We talk to Weather Watch forecaster Philip Duncan. Plus, Prospective employers are trying to lure workers with more money, more time off, and even requests to bring pets to work. If you think about pre-pandemic, it was probably a case of it's a privilege for you as a job seeker to come and work for me as an organisation, and that's now flipped on its head where organisations are really having to work a lot harder to attract the talent because it's just more competitive. Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up, a full dance card for you this morning, uh, we'll send you around the world and uh, we will also uh, talk this, it's quite interesting as well, this um, thing about reinfection of COVID and it seems like uh, when we're heading out to events right now, I think we're all getting in there and really just mixing up some new variants, um, let's not try and do that in New Zealand, so we will speak to a leading immunologist about that later in the show, but in Australia it's uh, coming up to bushfire season just around the corner, the South Australian government government has plans to track convicted firebugs. So using electronic monitoring bracelets, which are similar to those used for serious sex offenders, police will be alerted if the offenders approach a high-risk fire zone such as a national park. The ABC's Angus Randall reports. South Australia is facing another week of wet weather, but in parts of the state the fire danger season has begun. The government is introducing legislation to track convicted firebugs over the summer. Attorney General Kaya Ma says it will help keep the community safe. Police during the height of uh, bushfire season in, in very dangerous sort of conditions keep tabs on those people they think might be a danger. And we know that there are a few people every year that are convicted uh, of lighting bushfires and we want to make sure those that have done this sort of thing in the past now might be subject to being electronically monitored so the police's job is easier and the community's kept safer. Police in SA can already track suspected and convicted arsonists using number plate recognition, but this legislation would see firebugs deemed a risk to the community wearing a GPS tracking device 24-7. If they get too close to a forest or national park, it would send an alert to police. We're introducing it this week. We think it's a sensible reform. It was an election commitment, so we're hoping this will pass um, in the remaining few weeks we've got a parliament this year. It's similar to Victorian laws brought in nearly 10 years ago. Associate Professor Janet Stanley is from the University of Melbourne. She researches what makes firebugs tick. Often people like fires for a cry for help or um, to attract attention to their problems, these sort of issues. She believes there are better ways to prevent future fires, especially because so few arsonists are ever convicted. It's certainly something that I think will have little impact and and is certainly not the way to go. There's far more uh, useful and important ways to approach this problem. Very few arsonists are actually caught and convicted. The numbers are, I'm not sure for South Australia, but the numbers are way down sort of below 5%, below 2% probably. We don't know how many people who actually are arsonists are repeat offenders. 
a lot of them aren't. It's just uh, something that they got a terrible fright when it happened, so they don't continue it. Professor Stanley says subjecting someone to around-the-clock tracking could further ostracise people at risk of reoffending. People who light fires are very troubled people. We need to address why they're doing it, why they're troubled, what's causing this problem, especially with children. Serious sex offenders have faced GPS tracking for decades, and now other states are using the technology for other high-risk offenders. Terry Goldsworthy is an associate professor in criminal justice and criminology at Bond University. I think if you've got these high-risk offenders, that you know they have to make a risk-cost-benefit analysis, and that is, they know they're being monitored, and uh, you know there's a high risk of them being caught for offences. So, I mean, we're seeing this kind of uh, technology rolled out across. Uh, high-risk youth offenders in Queensland. We have DV offenders in Queensland who are high-risk uh, being fitted with these. And the more traditional ones we're uh, kind of aware of are, you know, the people who commit sex offenders and uh, are seen as a risk of uh, further offending. So, I mean, it's about uh, weighing up on one hand uh, the individual autonomy and freedoms and liberties, and on the other hand we're weighing up community protection and uh, trying to prevent future offences. If successful, the South Australian laws could be in place within weeks. The ABC's Angus Randall reporting there. It is ten past five and, uh, well, I mean, that's South Australian news. In Victoria, uh, the young and the beautiful and the people with too much money uh, got together at uh, the races and they were mixing up a new sub-variant yesterday together. What a day. Uh, Pam Corkery joins us now. <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Pam? How was, how was your Melbourne Cup day? Did it stop your nation? Look, I, I just have to tell you this. I didn't watch it. I'd probably be digging deep until um, to say who won. It's gold trip or something. But I did love the drama of the very, you know, well-heeled getting just drenched. It rained right from the start. And this is spooky. At the sort of four minutes exactly, which covered the length of the horse race, mm. the rain stopped. <gasps> I know. Because Warney wanted to watch his race. Yeah, exactly that. So, you know, yeah, all, all, you know, there is a God and um, he likes the the horses. But honestly, it was just swimming. I sent you through a link of a whole lot of people being very. (laughs) Some of them, you know, won't be feeling good today. But so the gosh, the Lion Brewery's tent. Now, I think that's New Zealand's tent was the most popular. It had the most well-heeled punters because, cannily, they had plentiful toilets, um, which are always is a win. No, that's what they're reckoning. Yeah, no, no, you're um, right. Actually, you are yeah. right. Yeah, big days on the race days like that, yes. Yep. Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, he warned his ministers and MPs not to be seen indulging in lavish corporate hospitality on the day, not with the cost of living crisis, and we had yeah. another interest rate announced yesterday. So, sports minister was there, trade minister, <laughs> <laughs> all these, all these people have been, you know, about seven, I think, um, were all there in the tent with the multiple toilets. Well, I mean, look, looking for a toilet's a smart thing. I think oh, that's, no, that shows I good totally leadership, get doesn't that. it? Yeah, it yeah. does. And also, they had their paid-for stars this year. Were um, the former Manchester United manager Sir Alex Ferguson and Brian Lara. Wow! Okay, I'm impressed with those two. Yes, me too. I've always had a wee soft spot for Brian Lara, yes. Everyone did, didn't we? Yes, I think so. And I just, and I think, my brother used to say, oh, God, what's going on here? It smells like Brian Lara's 
um, dressing room. So I think that was, that, was, that was when, I don't know, someone was smoking something. So that's my report. Well, I look, wasn't interested. I didn't bet. But there you go. If anyone out there would like to see uh, the gentry just having way too much, looking really lovely when they arrive and then falling over in bunches because they've drunk too much or maybe trying to punch each other, uh, just have a look at Melbourne Cup news today. It's a, it's a tradition like no other. Now, let's, let's head to something new, though, because um, there's talks now around of uh, a lot of people, it's like the world's just dropped its COVID settings, everyone's just relaxed, but not so good. Tell me about Queensland, because what's this new set of COVID rules for Queensland? Well, it's a not-so-new set of um, rules. Now, they're calling it a brand-new set of regulations that have been come up with here in Queensland, and it's called the traffic light system. Hmm. I know that may sound familiar. So they've got to abide by these new rules as the state has dropped its legal, you know, tenure to be able to cause lockdowns and things. So they're raving about it. It's given them the ability um, now to ward off. They're saying there's a new nightmare variant coming. Uh, yes, which is not good. It's breached Australian borders, and um, they're expecting a new wave in in Queensland. But it's already down in. New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia. It's the XBB strain. Yeah, that sounds like an energy drink. That sounds more like it'll do bad things to you. Yeah. Or a beer. It originated in Singapore. It's reported to be res- resistant to vaccines and antibodies. But I laughed like a drain watching it on the telly last night going, yes, this is our idea. This is terrific. And I thought, no, I know people who have gone through the um, yeah, <laughs> traffic light system. Exactly. So very quickly, because um, yes, we're running I out of time. Very seriously. No, no, no. This is me. No, very. Um, why is China not very happy with Australia at the moment? Because Washington is going to build a dedicated squadron operation facility at the airbase in Darwin, which can have, um, you know, nuclear B-52s, um, nuclear as well as conventional weapons. So this is all unfolded in the last couple of days, courtesy of ABC, the ABC uh, fantastic news team. Um, and... Asked, you know, the Department of Defence has declined to comment on when these B-52s would begin their deployment in South Darwin at a place called Tyndall. The US also plans to build its own jet fuel storage tanks there. Now, the um, the Chinese have said, don't do that. You cross this line, you die kind of thing. This could trigger a regional arms race and... Uh, oh, no. Yeah, federal and territory ministers say, no, it's a good investment, an economic boost. And meanwhile, the Australian government's going to start making its own missiles here. So apparently, quite frankly, we need more missiles in Australia, both as a stock and also the ability to maintain, repair and upgrade those missiles, rather than waiting for them to arrive via eBay. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful eBay. They didn't say that. No. (laughs) Pam, thank you so much for your time. Uh, It's always a great way to uh, start the show for us here on a Wednesday morning. That is Pam Corkery out of Queensland. At a quarter past five, I can tell you I'm Nathan Rarity and you're listening to First Up here at RNZ National. Uh, we go to the Middle East now. Our correspondent Alex Baird is with us in Doha. Uh, kia ora, Alex. What is the latest in Iran? Um, are there any signs of the protest dying down and losing steam? No, absolutely not. So we're actually into seven of these protests and a few days on Saturday, the uh, leader, the chief of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, 
right? And we're talking, this isn't, you know, any normal security force. They're, they're pretty brutal. They're known for being cutthroat. Um, basically came out and said to protesters, all right, today is your final day of these, what he's calling riots. Basically issuing a pretty, not an empty threat, a pretty, pretty big threat saying, you know, if you continue to riot, we're going to deal with it the way we feel fit. But these, they, these um, protests have just not stopped with heard reports of security forces using live rounds on protesters well over 200 people dead we've also just heard today that iran is planning to hold at the moment 2,000 trials of protesters who have already been detained and you can imagine that number is just going to continue going up because quite frankly the iranian state is doing absolutely nothing in response to these protests that would let protesters even stop, start thinking about stopping protesting. There has been absolutely no um, letting, letting up. Um, protesters are just wanting rights for women. They're wanting an end to some of these pretty archaic and intense laws that saw Masa Armini seven weeks ago die after being detained by the morality police. And so I would say you're not seeing these protests going anywhere, but you are hearing the rest from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard starting to ramp up. So I would say um, hold your breath, see what happens here. We can only hope that there won't be any more violence, but I still think with that sort of rhetoric, that's exactly what we could be looking at. So about how many arrests then, Alex? Did you even We've had thousands of arrests, but yeah. of those arrests, 2,000 of those people are now going to trial. Wow-y. For simply protesting for, for rights. Boy, uh, not far from Iran, we've also got Iraq, and they've, they've finally got a government. Yeah, so this is, you know, a bad news story, which has actually ended up being a bit of a good one. So Iraq had been sitting essentially without a government for the last year. Around a year ago, Iraq had held uh, held elections. Things have been pretty rocky um, politically in Iraq. But parliament just could not agree on a president. They could not agree on a government. Last month, they finally agreed on a president. And within the last week, we had the parliament agree or approve uh, the 21-member cabinet. Now, you can imagine, you just got to think back home in New Zealand, if you can imagine uh, a couple of elections ago when we had Winston Peters being that kingmaker, imagine that going on for a whole year. You can imagine the political instability that comes with that. But now, finally, a good sign for Iraq. They can start addressing some of these huge issues, cost of living, corruption, people just wanting to get on with their lives. Mm. Um, let's go to Israel and Lebanon. Um, they've, they've struck a maritime deal. This is a really interesting one. Now, Mm. uh, things in the eastern Mediterranean, it comes to Israel, Lebanon, Turkey, Greece, when it comes to the Mediterranean and when it comes to resource rights, things get pretty hairy because some of these maritime borders are big old gray areas and there's also big untapped resources in that region. But Israel and Lebanon, they've come together, signed an agreement, basically delineating their borders so that they can say, you know, resources this side are yours, resources this side are mine. But the interesting part of this is that ever since the wars way back in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, Israel and Lebanon have actually never officially uh, declared a peace. They're technically still in a state of war. Um, Lebanon does not recognize Israel as a nation. Um, and think that there's been no attempt at normalization, which is starting to see happen in this part of the world with the UAE, with a number of countries in North Africa. Some members in the region have said, hey, this is looking kind of like dangerously like you're starting to normalize ties. Lebanon saying, no, that's not what we're doing. 
Um, we're just trying to get some certainty in terms of resource rights. But a pretty in pretty interesting for a country to strike a deal with a country that they don't recognise as a country. So, <laughs> yeah, quite an interesting one there. Yeah, exactly. Where do you send it? Uh, yeah, okay, we agree to that. Alex, thank you so much for your time. Alex Beard, who so far has used the best word of the week, it's delineating. It is 20 past five. I'm Nathan Rarity here at First Up on RNZ National. So coming up, you're going to hear from a leading immunologist who says the country's approach to COVID now, uh, and that by this we mean citizens, and no one's wearing a mask or anything like that, uh, means that people under 50 who aren't boosted are just sitting ducks now. And we look at how COVID lockdowns and low unemployment have drastically changed what staff expect from their employers. Time to look at what is hot on Trade Me Now, and this morning we hear about a very high-altitude Kia, uh, perhaps the most luxurious camping experience ever, and one pretty sweet waterfront, waterfront property, if you're in the market. Our producer, Matthew Tunison, spoke with Trade Me's Millie Sylvester, who started by telling him about Kelly the Kia. Yeah, this is a pretty special listing, and to be fair, it's something like we've never really seen before on site. So this is a little a little Kia named Kelly, a stuffed toy that was actually launched into the stratosphere on October 15th. And Kelly left Mount Summers in Canterbury on a high-altitude balloon and reached 30 kilometres up in the air. Wow. Um, now, Kelly, thankfully, made it down safely. And now it's your chance, basically, to own and admire the first Kia to reach the stratosphere, which is such a cool way of making such a little soft toy that much more unique and special. The gorgeous little bird is made of felt. It's only five centimetres high and got a 10-centimetre wingspan. But it's what is really cool about it is that all proceeds from this auction are going to go to the Kia Conservation Trust. Oh, great. And there's some amazing pictures of it on board this high-altitude balloon hovering above the earth. It's pretty incredible to see. And we've also got a pretty special opportunity to camp in style in, in Waitomo this New Year's. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, what a great way to ring in the new year with, you know, your loved one or your bestie or maybe just even yourself. What is on offer is a night stay for up to four people on New Year's Eve at the Waitomo Hilltop Glamping Retreat. Now, this, I guess, really takes camping to a whole new level. And it's a one-of-a-kind way, really, just to escape that hustle and bustle of the year that's been and really, I guess, relax in luxury. That's that's so glamping, for the record, is it's, it's glamour camping, I think? It is Very popular. Camping. Very popular. <laughs> and now it, it, it's like luxurious canvas tents. It's got an ensuite, a bathroom, an outside bath as well, and a pizza oven. So... Yeah, it might be a stretch to call it camping, so yes. we call it glamping instead. Um, <laughs> How much is that is, one, Millie? Yeah, that one's at $1,500 at the moment. It's had 107 bids, so there is a lot of action on this auction. 436 watch lists and 18,000 views. So if this sounds like a bit of you or maybe the perfect Christmas gift to give someone, it closes on this Friday at 7.36 p.m. So you've got a little bit of time. What is really cool is that the listing will close this Friday, Gumboot Friday. So it's a pretty cool cause because all of the proceeds are going to go to Gumboot Friday. Oh, fantastic. Uh, I wouldn't mind that one. And now next on the list, we've got some pretty desirable waterfront property in Evans Bay. Tell us about that. This is a, a very interesting opportunity to own a slice 
of the Wellington waterfront with a Wellington boat shed in Evans Bay. This is literally a property where the water is lapping up at your doorstep. There is just literally right there. Now, it's one of just 15 of the boat sheds that are suspended above the water on Evans Bay Parade. And if you know Wellington well and you've driven along the coastline there, you will know these boat sheds. You probably have driven past them a couple of times. And, you know, you can just imagine soaking up in the sun. The, The navy boat shed with the white trim has a deck that sort of goes out over the water a couple of chairs and a a little table there would be the perfect, to be fair, the perfect place to to ring in the new year as well. So a a very rare opportunity that's come up for this one. Now, the boat shed spans 94 square metres, which is pretty generous for a boat shed, I reckon. And there's a little private ramp so you can keep, you know, a kayak or a a dinghy or or whatever you want if you're a a sailing type type. It's a really, really cool property. So it's to be sold by auction at 11 a.m. on the 8th of December. And the, the listing's just getting a whole lot of love on our site. It's had almost 13,000 page views. So oh, a really cute, picture-perfect boat shed. What, what, so there's 15 of these boat sheds, I think. And what, what, what sort of things do people do there? Just, you know, host events, have friends around and show off their amazing waterfront properties or what? I think so. I think, you know, after work on a Friday, you might head down there with a, with a few cold ones and sit and enjoy the sun. You might pull out a kayak and go for a cruise along the water if the wind isn't up. Some of them probably are actually just used as storage, to be honest with you, but such a cool little spot. An awesome opportunity here, I think, for someone. Yeah, you can sit there and you can watch the big wind wand uh, wobble about, can't you? That was always um, that was always my auntie's thing. Oh no, it never gets windy in Evans Bay. Two one zero one. If you are from the capital, what other Wellington myths do you hear? Two one zero one. What other Wellington myths do you hear apart from the it doesn't get windy in Evans Bay? Uh, that is trade me's Millie Sylvester. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Don't jump down my throat, Wellington. I'm born there, okay? Johnsonville. Hell yeah. Anyway. <clears throat> this is the day of our life we call the 2nd of November. Happy birthday to you, David Schwimmer. He did a whole bunch of other stuff, but he's Ross Geller from Friends. That's who he is. He is 56 years old today. Some of my favourite hair of the 80s from TV. If I tell you the TV show Heart to Heart, do you remember the cool theme that it had? Well, Stephanie Powers, she turns 88 years old today. She was born Stefania Sovia Paul uh, on this day 88 years ago. On this day in 1868, New Zealand got together and said, you know, all these different time zones we've got? Nah, let's regulate it. Let's have our own time zone in relation to Greenwich Mean Time, which meant that we became the first country in the world to do that. Go New Zealand. On this day in 1988, a man called Robert Morris, who was a computer science engineer, invented a thing called a computer worm. He sent it out into the internet, um, which was meant as an experiment. It took out 6,000 computers, which was one-tenth of the internet at the time. He ended up in prison for, uh, oh no, sorry, three years probation, I should say, 400 hours community service and a fine of $10,000 plus the cost of his supervision. Humans have been living in space since this day in 2000. The first resident crew, including one American and two Russians, arrived at the International Space Station on this day in 2000. And a bit of pop culture for you. On this day in 2001, the movie Monsters, Inc. came out. Uh, It um, was produced for $115 million. It made 577.4, John Goodman in that, as well as Billy Crystal. And the song that was impossible to escape, 
Why? Because 7.04 billion people have, well, views have been done on YouTube of the song Baby Shark, released on this day in 2020. And that is what happened on this day of our life, the 2nd of November. Joining us from our business team is Giles Beckford. Kia ora, Giles, how are you? Um, well, thank you, Nathan. More energy. to you. Yeah, I've been living in the baby shark world for two years. Tell me about, um, <laughs> what, what's Unilever? What, tell Unilever. me about this. this well, is this a new know, thing? You will know Unilever for a wide range of uh, household products, uh, soap powders, soap, um, detergent, uh, mm. food, the works. They tried, uh, or they started... About 18 months ago, uh, towards the end of 2020, uh, a trial of a four-day working week. Now, if you remember, one of our local insurance firms uh, pioneered this uh, and and made it work, put it in place and made it work. So Unilever, which has about 80 people in this country, thought that they'd do the same. They'd give it a trial. Well, they've done it for 18 months or so, and they've decided it's actually delivered the goods. So this is people working four-day weeks for five days' pay. Uh, and from that point of view, uh, absenteeism has dropped by about a third. People are feeling better. In other words, they, you know, they're more energised when they're at work. Hmm. Uh, conflict apparently has fallen quite markedly. Uh, people reported lower stress, and they're still delivering all the things that were expected to do in business in five days. So the company says, that works for us, it works for the staff, we'll keep it going. Yeah, uh, and and that uh, is a, a a sign of the times. The New Zealand initiative, of course, has been picked up, and there's a big trial of it being done in Britain at the moment, with many hundreds of firms working it out. So, once again, we've shown a, a little bit of leadership in the world of business, and in particular of uh, work workers' well-being, should we say. Every now and then, I've got uh, relatives on Facebook who post that, oh, you can, you know, um, get off the grid and do these things yourself. And they're always like, how to build a home hydrogen engine. And I'm like, please don't do that. That could be the last <laughs> mistake you make. I think there are professionals that are going to be doing this. What's this lure oh, of green hydrogen? Green hydrogen is where you make uh, hydrogen from renewable energy. Now, you can have, uh, I think it's brown hydrogen, which is basically, if it comes out of a coal-fired power station, it's called brown hydrogen. Uh, and there's a category in between. But New Zealand is looking for ways of using our large renewable resources, energy resources, uh, and they say, is hydrogen the fuel of the future? Interestingly, a court case just came out yesterday, allows for uh, a couple of Taranaki firms to put up four wind turbines so they can generate power to make hydrogen to put into trucks. Mm. Uh, which is, you know, quite a sensible use for it. And hydrogen has certainly been identified as a fuel for heavy transport. But uh, the old Marsden Point refinery is looking at uh, putting up or setting up a, a solar farm in order to make green hydrogen, in order to make sustainable aviation fuel. And down in the South Island, uh, Contact and Meridium, two big power companies they're currently going through a study to see whether they could put uh, a big big uh, hydrogen uh, station you know, manufacturing mm. uh, group there uh, and they're looking at possibly being able to power um, 
data centers uh, and the like. So, so hydrogen is being much spoken of, a lot of work being done on it. I have to say that there's a good deal of debate as to just actually how good a fuel it is. It's difficult to, uh, to handle and to store, uh, and there's a good deal of energy loss while you're making the stuff. But, um, for instance, if we could make enough uh, green hydrogen here, it's been suggested we could export it to energy uh, deficient countries uh, such as Japan. That'd be good. Who could use it, something like a a, a substitute for gas. Wouldn't it be good being an energy exporter? That'd be good. Well, we could buy Manchester City. Oh, do you think we're that desperate? <laughs> no, no, we won't be. Why don't we just support the, the sports teams that we've got? Yeah, we'll got? do that. The Wellington Phoenix will have Ronaldo and everyone. That's what we'll do with our, with our hydrogen. <laughs> well, then, a, a young Ronaldo. A young, you don't yeah, young Ronaldo, not the one at the moment. Millionaires. No, no, that one there. Uh, it's the most common thing in the entire universe. I'm sure they can find some hydrogen. Thank you very much, Charles Beckford. And you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10.27. So let's see how your New Zealand dollar is out there right now. It's being traded at... 58.33 US cents, 91.29 Australian cents, 59.08 Euro cents, 50.85 British pence, 4.23 yuan, and 86.36 Japanese yen. Um, now, uh, those of you on the West Coast, South Island, you would have heard about this West Coast due to be hammered by deluge rain this morning. Um, we're hearing could be more than a month's worth um, due in the coming days. Oof. Joining us to explain what's happening, it's always a pleasure to say kia ora to Weather Watch forecaster Philip Duncan. How are you, sir? Kia ora. I'm very good. How about yourself? I'm good, man. So tell us about the coast. A lot of people there tuning in go, well, what's going to happen? What is going to happen? Yeah, there's a significant amount of rain falling in a, in a fairly narrow area around about Hokitika, uh, that area, and from sort of Greymouth southwards. But Hokitika has got 120 millimetres of rain forecast for just the next 24 hours. And you can sometimes double that for the mountains. So that is a lot of rain falling in a fairly short amount of time. And this is part of coming out of uh, a stormy system that's been in Australia for the last few days. So, yeah, very, very wet 24 hours coming up for the West Coast. Will it be one of those ones, do you think, Philip, and the weather that's led up to it, is it really going to drench the ground and you know cause slips and things like that? It will, except one positive is that this heavy rain event is falling in an area that naturally can cope with it quite well. If you fly out of uh, Hokitika Airport, you'll see how big those rivers are, the braided rivers. They are huge, and they can take a massive volume of rain. That doesn't mean that there won't be slips and problems, but that, that just saying it's an, it's an area that is naturally built to deal with these sorts of downpours. But this is about four to 600% the normal sort of rainfall we'll be seeing. In saying that, the long-range forecast for the West Coast is actually one of drier than usual conditions. Oh, okay. So make sure your tanks are open. So how long will the locals have to hunker? How many days? Really just today. Today is the day with the heavy rain, and then the wind comes in, and the typical spring windy westerlies, which we actually haven't had a lot of so far this spring, they're going to turn up, and they're going to be surging off and on, really, in this, this month coming up. But this, is, this week coming up is the windy week. I'm one of those weirdos that quite likes humidity. I, I love hot weather. I love it. It feels like I'm on holiday. Auckland um, said, hi, everyone. Winter's gone. I'm going to smack you in the face with humidity yesterday. What are, the, what are the numbers that you've got on it? It's very interesting how quick it is, eh? Like a week or so ago, it was people complaining about when's, when's the warmth turning up. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the, the, the humidity levels over the last few days in the north have been very high. Sunday in Auckland, and, and not just Auckland, but Tauranga and Hamilton and Whangarei, the, the um, humidity levels didn't really drop below 80-something percent. So it's very high. 
Now, tonight, the overnight low across a large portion of the North Island is 17 degrees. That's normally what we get in the middle of summer. So if you thought last night was warm, tonight's going to be warmer as that northwester kicks in and uh, pushes temperatures up. There could be places in the east like uh, parts of um, Hawke's Bay that might get close to 30 degrees today. So it's certainly not um, a cold period of time. And while there will be a bit of a cool change in Southland at times this week, most of the country is actually looking pretty warm for the next couple of weeks ahead. So does that mean that we're going to have a really hotter than normal summer, or is it kind of too early to know? I think, it's, I think it does look like that's likely to happen. Um, it, it may not be hotter than normal everywhere. Sometimes when you get these warm nights, these 17-degree nights, um, the daytime temperatures can be a little bit flatter. Sometimes extra cloud can do that. So it makes for a warm night, but not the hottest day. Sometimes we do get that with La Nina, but but La Nina is here at the moment. This is the month that it peaks, so this is the month that we're most likely to get these warm nights, humidity, that sort of stuff. Wonderful. Philip, thank you so much for your time. You can get all the best stuff from Weather Watch. Uh, there where Philip Duncan puts the weather together for you. It is 20 to 6, I'm Nathan Rarere, and you are listening to First Up on RNZ National. So between now and the end of the programme, we catch up with Morning Report. We also hear uh, from a cellular immunologist that's getting me every time this morning, Dr Anna Brooks, as she talks about this basically a COVID soup that's going to happen if we're not, we don't change what we're doing. Plus, uh, we find out about employees. It's an employee market out there as people are out there wanting better work conditions. <laughs> The professionals of Morning Report are with us after six, and with a preview of what is happening on the programme today, it is Mr. Corin Dan. Kia ora. Good morning, Nathan. Uh, kia ora, everybody. Yes, uh, we'll check in on the weather, because uh, it's very windy here in Wellington, and of course very wet on the west coast. Uh, so we're going to check in there on uh, whether or not there is a flooding risk. Uh, so we'll check in with Niwa very early on in the programme. But uh, also, too, it comes as a report out, uh, government report out, looking at the issue of flooding for some of these small towns and flood protection and what measures can be taken. So we're going to examine that as mm. well because this is an ongoing issue with climate change. And for many of these small towns uh, that don't have the ratepayer base, if you like, to potentially build new flood protections, it's going to be a major, uh, a major problem in debate over the next few years. We'll look at Pharmac and the decision making it uh, puts in place around uh, cancer funding for children. They're potentially proposing some change around this. Could be controversial. It's a very difficult area because uh, cancer drugs uh, for children are automatically funded uh, currently but they are just raising the issue that this is causing some issues uh, and as to whether this should continue in future. No, No decision has been made. It's just a a, uh, I guess mooting what is very a very sensitive, difficult area. Uh, Christopher Luxon is in to talk this morning. His uh, weekly catch up. We'll talk to him about uh, three waters, about hate speech, uh, possibly about tax. Uh, that'll probably cover it. And we do have to cover the cricket. A little bit annoying to lose that, but the run rate's okay, isn't it, Nathan? Tell me, tell me. Well, that's what? Sorry, I just had it. I just <laughs> the I run know, the rate, cr- the run rate in the cricket. We're yeah, okay. We're going to make great. the semis. Yeah, yeah, I think we well, I mean, uh, was that a low-key, clever way of knocking Australia out? I well, yeah, we just better hope it doesn't rain, is what Barry <laughs> Guy was telling me. He says if it rains in our last game, then we'd be stuffed.
Yeah. <laughs> well, let's hope it doesn't. Corin, thank you very much for your time, sir. That's what's happening up after six. Well, uh, recruitment agencies say that COVID has changed the business landscape and employees are bargaining for flexible work hours, more money, more time off and even requests to bring pets to work. Madison Recruitment says that New Zealand's working environment has progressed 10 years over the past two years as companies compete to find staff. Leonard Powell reports on how COVID has changed our working lives. After an unsettling two and a half years, people's working habits are changing fast. Experts are calling it an employee's market, with job seekers not afraid to lay out their expectations from employers, whether it's better pay, working from home, or even allowing pooches in the office. It's really competitive out there. Companies and organisations are having to think quite differently about how to attract talent. Uh, If you think about pre-pandemic, you know, it was probably a case of it's a privilege for you as a job seeker to come and work for me as an organisation. And that's now flipped on its head where organisations are really having to work a lot harder to attract their talent because it's just more competitive. That's Rob Clark, the country manager for Seek, New Zealand's largest employment marketplace. He says the script has been flipped on its head. The employment landscape is still very much a candidate short one. And by that we mean the number of jobs has increased significantly and at a much faster rate than we've seen the number of candidates available. The outcome of that is we're seeing fewer applications per job. It's a market where there's a very high demand for candidates and there's just a relatively short supply of them compared to what we've been used to. And there's one big carrot in particular that many people say is an absolute must. According to our research, you know, four in ten job seekers would resign from their role if working from home was not an option. Seek says while job advertisements have levelled out over the past few months, they're still up 22% on last year and 35% higher than September 2019. These workers say their working lives have been transformed post-pandemic. Pre-COVID, I worked full-time in the office, and post-COVID, I now have a hybrid working model where I do up to me how many days I do in the office or at home, but I usually do about two to three days at home and then two to three days in the office. So yeah, I love it. It is far, far, far better for my holder. Would you ever go back to five days in the office? I will never go back to five days full-time in the office. I might sound entitled as I've just started my career, but I know for the rest of my life I want a hybrid working model. Well, for my was just more cruisy. Yeah, <laughs> better. Will you go back to full-time in the office? No. No. Is everyone on the same page with it? Yeah, if they can do four days a week, if they can do full-time at home, they'll just do that. The people are just way more chilled, so they are way more casual, even on the, on the monitors. Christian Brown is the general manager of Madison Recruitment. He says job seekers are now the ones calling the shots. We're finding that a lot of the people that we're looking for work for will say that if they don't get some sort of flexibility, if they don't get some of these um, you know, changes in their, in their lifestyle that they're used to, then they'll just put a line through that potential job. Mr Brown says these huge changes to employment relations have been rapid. It's like New Zealand has progressed sort of 10 years or so in the last two years in terms of our attitudes towards flexibility. Lots of the people that we see looking for work now see it as a, as a necessity rather than a perk. For some people in their first jobs, office life is something they've never experienced at all. This software engineer started his job a couple months after the first lockdown and still works from home full-time more than two years on. When I first started my job, the only option was to be working from home. It's sort of maintained throughout, right? 
just been flexible ever since. All my colleagues that I work with now were in the office like five days a week beforehand. Most people want to stay, stay at home rather than go into the office. What's the biggest perk for you working from home? Uh, well, noise. You can concentrate a lot better when you're at home, for sure. Less distractions, more flexible, you know. And also the commuting, right? You don't have to go to the office every single day. There's literally no, down, <laughs> no downsides. Like, I don't know, most meetings, like all our meetings are done. Even if we were at the office, we would take the meetings online anyway. So, yeah, it's easier. New Zealand tech company Vista Group has offices in USA, South Africa, England, Mexico and the Netherlands. To keep the staff happy, it's trialling a shorter week, as well as offering a hybrid working model. Chief People Officer Anna Ferguson says they like what they're seeing so far. Last year we introduced the four and a half day work week, so all of our employees around the world get Friday afternoons off, we finish at one o'clock, and that has been enormously successful. So we've got a really strong belief that what's good for our people is good for the business, and that's transpired. We haven't had any drop in our customer service levels, we haven't had any drop in productivity. People really focus on what they need to do so that they can have that early afternoon on Friday. Miss Ferguson agrees that it's an employee's market right now and says companies need to adapt if they want to get and retain staff. I think it's true of both employees and potential employees that there's a strong sense of what they want um, from their employers and from the business. And in a tight labour market, we need to listen to those concerns, and we should be in any case. Flexibility has now become the norm, and I think if you can't offer flexibility, then you'll be left behind. The latest statistics puts New Zealand's unemployment rate at 3.3%, with figures from the August quarter expected to be released later today. Leonard Powell with that report. And we head towards 6 o'clock. Look, Christmas might be just around the corner, but a swarm of COVID sub-variants is set to drive up a new wave of infections just in time for the holiday season. No, 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 don't tire of that. Listen to this, listen to this. Infectious disease experts are warning people about the heightened risk of being reinfected with the virus. Virus cellular immunologist Dr Anna Brooks is urging people to mask up and push their GPs for PCR tests and boosters as open borders and people you know, getting very lax with their mask use has seen a soup of COVID variants show up in wastewater tests around the country and we're very lucky to be able to say kia ora to uh, Dr Anna Brooks who joins us now. Um, thank you very much for, for being here with us today. So look, more than 20,000 reported cases this week, 10% they think are, are reinfections. How common are reinfections and, and how do we know that their reinfections? Yeah, I, I guess we, we're not really going to know or get a, a really decent handle on that unless we're doing more surveillance, more testing and more reporting. So what we have seen in other countries where there, where there may be more uh, of the um, tracking of uh, infections is that those reinfection numbers are starting to go up with these new variants. And what that means is when you've had one of your, uh, when you've had prior infection, you completely cover, recover. But within, you know, it, it can be a few months, or you know, it can be as short as a month. Uh, we we don't really know sometimes with the as the new variants hit the scene, just how evading they are of the immune yeah. system. But essentially, it means that you are getting a fresh new infection, um, despite having had, uh, you know, some immunity from your prior infection. So just to get anecdotal here, our producer Jeremy, mm. he tested positive for COVID a couple of days ago, even though he had it about a month ago. So is it likely to be a mm -hmm. new infection in that case, do you think, or is it still some remnants of, of the old one? 
Well, in the past, we used to sort of say that it can be unlikely, but now we've got, as you say, a variant soup. So, um, you know, we've, when you've got various variants uh, circulating, you're going to have more chance of, of getting a variant that, uh, you know, that evades the immune system. Uh, normally, as, as I say, it, it's not that common, but we just don't know until we're, we're starting to track this more and more. And it also gets confounded and a little bit confused for people who may get uh, their primary, you know, their first infection and they don't properly recover, like they may have symptoms that suggest that they're not recovered, that can also happen, but that, that's less likely. If you get an infection, completely recover, you know you're negative, and then you know 30 days or, or less later you retest positive with symptoms, that's likely a reinfection. Okay. Is there a particular demographic or part of society who are predominantly getting these reinfections? It's hard to know, really. Um, I guess what we're likely to sort of see is those people who are furthest from their last immune response. And that immune response could have been your last boost or it could have been your infection. So we know that, you know, our largest Omicron wave was back in uh, sort of March and then we had another one July-ish. But, it, you know, just just by association, we, we're probably going to expect that you're more likely to get reinfected if it was a long time ago. Some people were, you know, boosted as far back as, as January. And we know that, you know, this isn't just about reinfections as well. There, there are many people who have evaded uh, getting, infected, getting infected. And, you know, it, that, that choice, if you like, of, of remaining uninfected in a society that has so-called moved on is going to become difficult, essentially. So people who, you know, were boosted a very long time ago, their immunity will have waned. And it's just a little bit hard hearing, you know, the concept that uh, hybrid immunity protects people. Hybrid immunity is an outcome and should never be an aim. So um, you know, that, that's what we sort of represent as well, is that there are pr- plenty of vulnerable people or, you know, um, a, a large percent of society who still want to avoid getting infected because infections are never a goal. No, it's terrible. And just the weeks afterwards, are just ter- look, if you're lucky enough to get through it, let's be honest, this is a, a thing that has killed many people around the planet too. Mm-hmm. Now, um, this this XBB strain that we heard Pam talk about earlier on in the, in the program, which comes out of Singapore, I think Queensland's where it is now, we're hearing all sorts of other ones. Tell us about this COVID soup that's out there in the world at the moment and all these new variants. Yeah, so what we're seeing is yeah, that there's that one there. That's I think they call it, um, you know, like it's a combination of two variants, um, and then we've got subvariants that are generally spin-offs from you know the last uh, one circulating. But essentially, every time a variant or subvariant emerges, it's because you know it, it's it's gained mutations to escape the immune system. So. You know what? What we would have loved to have seen here is is better surveillance, so that we know and can be a, a bit more prepared, so that society understands. I think is also a key aspect. You know, it's it, it's it's raising that awareness that we that this hasn't gone away, and we can expect to see uh, the re- reinfection rates increase if that's what we start to see internationally as well. So it kind of means that you know we each. Uh, group or each demographic is going to have different susceptibilities depending what variants are you know within your community and whether you know you have any uh, immunity to it or less immunity as I say because it depends how long ago it was that you had your last boost to your immune system. 
Yeah. So, Dr. Brooks, you, you would be advising anyone if you're check your check your booster immunity and make sure you can go and get one if if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Boosting is always going to give you that layer of protection. So, uh, you know, the the biggest concern we have at the moment is that for some people, you know, you have to be over 50 to to have got a a second boost. So, uh, you know, that can be frustrating for, as I say, the, you know, the the diligent evaders of, of, um, of getting infected are worried that they're no longer protected. But certainly, you know, talk to your GP if, if you think you're eligible uh, to get boosted and masking is still critical. You know, there's, there's this complacency that just because we're in summer and we're less likely to be congregating in, indoors, essentially the, the winter environment, that we're less likely to get infected. And, you know, we, we saw all through the summers around the world, it did not stop COVID waves and it's not going to stop COVID waves here. We just don't have, you know, each country and each demographic and previous round of infections governs the, the size of the wave and that's going to also come down to human behaviours as well. Oh, well, let's hope it gets better. Uh, thank you very much. There you are. That's the warning from Dr. Anna Brooks there. Please take it on board, everybody. Um, it's a wonderful world. Experience it as much as you can there. So make sure and get your boosters. Someone says, what's the story with booster shots? Is it still a thing you can get? Yes, it is. Make sure you get it. Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day. Prepare for the hot weather or the wet weather that's coming your way. And we'll be back in your ears. Up football.